All right, welcome to week two of Anything Goes. We're jumping into the hard questions that we have about life and faith and the Bible and how we should live. And this week is, is a really interesting question, I think. And it may not be one that you've had on your mind, but I think it's one we need to ask and we need to take seriously as Christians. Here, here's the question. If many non-Christians have spiritual experiences, then why do we think that Jesus is the only way to God? If so many Christians have these life-changing, impactful experiences with spiritual realities, and they're, they're not Christians, then why would we say that Jesus is the only way to God? Someone who asked this question uh, added a little bit more. They said there, there are potentially billions of people who've had these experiences, these spiritual experiences. They're not Christians. So, so where do we get to say, we're like, do, we, do we just write those off? Do we get to invalidate those? Or how do we, how do we handle that? I think it's an interesting question, especially in, in a culture we're in today, which kind of used to have at least this veneer of Christianity on it, and now we're so quickly becoming pluralistic, lots and lots of different belief systems. I think it's an important question for us to, to answer. Like, why, why would we say that Jesus is the only way to the Father, the only way to God, when all these other people are having spiritual experiences? I mean, I was, I was sitting in a Zaxby's. Uh, a couple years ago with a guy who had visited Foundry, and we were talking about his life, and he had just had his second kid, and he named his second kid after a Norse goddess, and it's not a really common name, and so I pointed out, I said, hey, is that, did you name your, your daughter after this Norse goddess? He said, oh yeah, I actually believe in the Norse gods, and he was dead serious, and there was something about being in a, in a Zaxby's which is like so normal and underwhelming, honestly, not nearly as good as Cane's or Chick-fil-A and you know, having, having dinner there. And then he's over here telling me about how he believes in like Thor and Odin and Frigga and all these gods like Loki, that he actually believes these, these gods are the, like the, what he should believe. And it's spiritually impacting to him. He's, he's like his life is being shaped by the concept of Valhalla and by Odin and Thor. And it was, it was a really odd experience for me, like being a Mississippi boy growing up in the Deep South where everybody's at least kind of externally Christian. Like He had this belief system. And then we've got to grapple with the reality. Like There are Muslims who have stories of being miraculously healed. Like That's a pretty spiritual experience, and they've been healed, but they don't believe in Jesus. What, what do we do with that? You have Hindus who have this deep and abiding joy because of what they believe. You have Buddhists who have an amazing sense of peace, and they, they just had this amazing spiritual experience of peace, and what do you do with that? Or in America today, you have New Age, a lot of New Age belief of various kinds, and a lot of people who have these New Age beliefs, kind of Buddhism that's been brought into uh, the 21st century in America, they have this deep faith in what they believe. And sometimes, and this is, this is where you got to start wrestling with it, like maybe they experience more peace than you experience right now, or maybe they have more joy than you have, or maybe someone's been healed and they don't believe in Jesus, and you're over here being like, I believe in Jesus, but I haven't been healed. So how do, how, what do we do with that? And I don't know if you can feel the, feel the tension in this question, but I think it exists. Like how do we deal with the fact that people have spiritual experiences who are not followers of Jesus? So I want, I want to address this. I want to address it biblically. I want to stretch us and challenge us a little bit. And I hope by the end of this that it deeply grows our faith in Jesus as the only way to the Father. The first thing I think we have to accept and realize 
when it comes to non-Christians having these deeply impactful transformational spiritual experiences is that we are all, because we are created by God and made in the image of God, that's like one of the first things the Bible teaches, that we are deeply spiritual beings. Like you and I have this amazing capacity to connect with God and to connect with each other at a, at a spiritual level. We're not simply like a composition of atoms and molecules joined together, interacting in very natural ways. We're so much more than that. We're spiritual beings. And so it should come as no surprise that like spiritual beings can have spiritual and do have spiritual experiences and make spiritual meaning of the things around us. And so, so that's where we, have to, where we have to start. And if you ever doubted the fact that we're spiritual beings, look no further than our fascination with conspiracy theories, with the paranormal. I was talking to a lady recently, and she listens to this podcast. I don't know anything about it. I don't know if it's good or bad, but it's all about the paranormal from a Christian perspective, all about like Bigfoot and the Loch Ness Monster from a Christian perspective. And she was so excited about it because for Christmas, her husband had gotten her a membership to the special podcast club about Christian Bigfoot. All right, she's so pumped about it. Like there's something built into us that just loves the spiritual, loves the paranormal. We're so fascinated by things beyond our normal experience. And I believe it's because God has, has created in us the desire to be in relationship with, with himself, with this eternal, all-knowing, omnipresent God. And, and we have this capacity in us. And so when that's not directed towards him, we're going to direct it all kinds of ways. Now, I think Scripture gives us reason to think that non-Christians, people who don't believe in the one true God, do and can and will have spiritual experiences. In fact, I think there are, there are three reasons, because we're spiritual beings, three reasons why, why non-Christian people will have these deeply spiritual experiences. The first reason is because of the Holy Spirit and God's grace at work in this world. And so there, there are ways that God's grace, His blessing on us, on all people, is experienced by, in a deeply spiritual way by those who aren't even Christians. So in Matthew 5.45, Jesus is teaching, and he, send, he says that the, the, the Father causes the Son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. In other words, and by the way, that was a good, good thing. Rain coming down in this, this agricultural, ag agrarian society they had was a good thing. It means pr crops could grow. And so, so Jesus is saying, like, God's grace, in some sense, and the, the theological term for this is common grace, goes out to all people. Like, all people at some level get to experience God's goodness and his grace at work in their lives. Uh, but then we see specific instances of, of God's spirit moving and working with people who aren't Christians. One of these examples is in Matthew chapter 27, and this is right before Jesus is crucified. And he's appearing before a Roman governor named Pilate, who really has all the power here. He can say whether Jesus is crucified or not. But he's, he's also kind of afraid of, of all the Jewish religious authorities because they're very influential as well. There's this kind of this power struggle going on under the surface. And Pilate recognizes that Jesus hasn't done anything wrong, but, but he still ends up sentencing him to be crucified. All right, in the process of this, Pilate's wife, not a Christian, comes to him and says, hey, this guy, I've had this, I've been tormented in my dreams. This guy is innocent. Now, we're not told how she got that, that insight, but presumably somehow God's spirit was at work to, because, you know, a demonic spirit wouldn't have said Jesus is innocent. Um, it came and, and kind of revealed this to her. It seems like the Holy Spirit might have done this. Another example of this is, is back in Genesis 
uh, when, when Pharaoh, the, the king of Egypt, has this dream. And it's, it's a true dream about what's to come. And it's one then that, that Joseph is able to, by the power of God, to interpret, which brings glory to God and moves God's plan forward through Joseph. And so you have this other example of the spiritual experience by a pagan king who believed in all the false gods of Egypt, but he's having this, this dream that seems to be from the one true God. And, and over and over again in the Old Testament, dreams are ways that it seems like often God uses, the one true God uses to communicate, but also we know that, that other spiritual beings are communicating these dreams as well. But, but there, there's a reality of it. it seems like God does this. Here's the final example, and this is maybe the clearest one. Acts chapter 10, you have a guy named Cornelius. He's, he's a Roman centurion. He's devout. He fears God, but he's not a Christian. So he's a non-Christian who, who believes kind of in God, in, in a one true God, but doesn't have, have the knowledge and have the faith to actually believe in Jesus. But he has an angel appear to him and, and tell him about how, what's going to go down to go and you know, send some messengers and bring back this guy named Peter. And Peter ends up coming back, the disciple, and, and preaches the gospel, and they're saved. But this is before he was saved, this messenger from God appears, this amazing spiritual experience. And so the first reason why people, even non-Christians, have spiritual experiences is the power of the Holy Spirit and God's grace at work in their lives. All right, the second reason is a little darker. That some reasons why people have spiritual experiences are demonic powers are at work in this world and in their lives. And I know that, I know that like maybe pushes us or challenges us a little bit because we, we feel kind of bad maybe sometimes saying that someone's spiritual experience, which seems so positive for them, is actually demonic at its root. But again, this is biblical. So you go to Exodus chapter 7 when Moses is in Egypt and he's doing these miracles in front of Pharaoh. And then the magicians, the court magicians, Pharaoh's magicians, do the same thing by their secret arts, it says. right? This is the demonic power that they're somehow tapping into. A real spiritual power doesn't compare to the power of God, but a real spiritual power they're tapping into. You see this in Matthew chapter 24. Jesus is teaching, right? And Jesus, he's, he's like the most grounded, uh, most straightforward teacher of God's will of all time. And he says, there's going to come a time when false Christs or false messiahs come saying that they're returning, the return of Jesus. And there's going to be a time when there's false prophets who come and they are going to do signs and wonders. Now, they're, they're false prophets. They're evil they're working for the demonic, but they're going to do signs and wonders. That's another example, right, of when the power, uh, demonic power can come in and create these spiritual experiences. The final example, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, and it talks about this time when the Antichrist will come, and by the power of Satan he will perform signs and wonders. And so sometimes people have spiritual experiences, even though they're not Christians, because of the Holy Spirit and God's grace at work, but sometimes it's demonic power. Now, I think most of the time when people have spiritual experiences and they're not Christians, it actually falls into this final category. And this is a really broad category, and that is that our beliefs shape our experiences. What we believe is true shapes how we experience something, shapes how we see things, shapes how we come to understand and interpret and experience our lives. So our beliefs shape our experiences, beliefs, shapes, experiences. And I'll give you a great example of how this is true around us. Uh, and it's, it's true mainly for kids, uh, sometimes for kids ages 12 or 13 as they're getting a little bit older, but it is Santa Claus. Right, this, is, this is like a powerful, a magical experience that most kids 
in America have at some point. You believe in this good, uh, loving, gracious old man who's going to ride around and do what's like impossible. It's, it, the physics of it don't work out and deliver specific, tailor-made, handcrafted gifts to every kid in the world. And, and like how many kids believe this? Most, most kids do. And so that they believe this, and it shapes their experience. They begin to see things and put pieces together about how this thing works. And then at some point, when they actually get old enough to critically think, it kind of all falls apart. But it's not just kids. I want to talk about something that, that you might be able to resonate with, or you'll at least see, right, with the Super Bowl coming up, you're going to see people who, who experience something. They experience the Super Bowl, and if they're 49ers fans or Chiefs fans, they'll experience it in two different ways. If their team is on the winning side, this is going to produce so much joy. They will be grown men who otherwise wouldn't act like this in public are going to be jumping up and down like little kids, hugging each other. And sometimes, if like, especially if they're in the stadium, they'll be hugging people they don't even know. They're just so excited. On the other side, if your team is lo- if you're watching it tonight and your team loses, then, then what you'll experience is deep sadness because of, of kind of a, a belief, an allegiance to a team creates and shifts how you experience something. I think a broader way we see this is, is the idea and kind of new age belief of manifesting things. And by the way, this is not a Christian thing at all. If you believe that you can and do manifest things, that's, that's a deeply unbiblical way of viewing the world. But the idea of that, if, if I just focus on something enough that I can actually cause that thing to become a reality in my life. Now, the truth is, this this doesn't work. I mean, it's not true, except for the fact that if you're positive and focused, and if you're focusing on a goal, and you really focus on it, and you work to accomplish it, you'll accomplish that goal. And so there's a level that just practically it works, but if if you believe in manifesting things, and you really focus on something, you're going to give credit to this spiritual principle of manifestation, and you're going to think that that principle produced this thing, even though it was just you focusing on it. And so your beliefs shape your experience. And so if, if you are a Muslim, a devout Muslim, and you believe that Allah gives you peace and Allah gives you joy, and you, you believe that you know Allah, then your experience will probably be largely one of you experience more peace and more joy through your belief and how you follow through on that belief. I, I really think this, this is the case for, for most or at least many people who claim and believe they're Christians in the U.S., this is, this is kind of the level that they experience God. They believe there's a divine higher power, and it's usually pretty generic. Jesus is the name they're going to put on it because, you know, they're here in America and there's kind of a Christian background to this country. So they're going to believe in Jesus. And so if they kind of believe that Jesus wants good for them and Jesus produces good things and Jesus brings peace then they'll experience some level of that. Like, it's just not a nice thing knowing that there's an almighty, all-powerful God who's kind of got your back. But what's interesting is even how they, how they view God's role is unbiblical. They think God is there to produce happiness and general goodness in our lives, which is not God's purposes in this world. God, God loves you and he cares for you, but he's got a lot bigger purposes for your life than just for you to be happy. He wants to form you into an eternal being who is going to exist forever in his presence. Like God cares a lot more about that than he does about you just having a good day. And I think he helps us have good days, but like his, his purposes are so much bigger. But I think a lot of Christians, uh, even, maybe even so-called Christians, are just living at the level of they have a belief about God and it generally gives them some comfort and happiness in this life. All, all of these ways of approaching 
God are limited. And here, here's the real breakdown. Here's the real breakdown if, if you're approaching God in any of these ways. The, the real problem with, with putting experience and how you experience God at the center of your faith is that if experience is your primary measure of faith, then your foundation is yourself. If how you're experiencing your faith is, is the primary way you have to understand what your faith is and your experience of it, then you're just basing it off how you feel. You're basing it off of yourself. And the truth is, for, for most of us Americans, we're so attuned to how we feel and how we experience things that that's what we do. Our faith is, is based on and a product of how we feel, how we experience something. I had a guy come and visit Foundry a couple years ago. And because he visited, I took him out for coffee, got a chance to know him, kind of figured out where he was at, what he believed. This was back in the early days of Foundry. Great guy, really enjoyed our time together. But at some point, I asked him, so, so what do you believe? Because what, what it, it was pretty clear he wasn't a Christian, or at least a traditional kind of Christian. So I so said, what do you believe? And, and he believed, it's kind of a, a neo-Buddhist thought. By neo-Buddhist, I mean like this, this sense of we're all interconnected and kind of there's this great oneness. And, and so he, he had this belief that we were all connected and love was the thing that joined us all together. But we were really all one kind of being or entity and we're just kind of separate pieces of that. And he had this belief based on one experience. And the experience was that he had a drug-induced trip. He did shrooms one time. And it was such a powerful experience for him that he kind of dropped everything in his life and reoriented his life around one shroom-induced trip that he had where he had this deep sense that we were all connected as human beings and love is what bound us together. That was his experience. And because that was his experience, everything else in his life was shaped around that. Now, the truth is, I think a lot of People who claim to be Christians do the same thing. So I'm not talking down on this guy. I think what I'm trying to show is if, if we're basing who we are and what we believe and everything else off of experience, our personal experience, then your foundation is yourself. Your foundation is limited to who you are. So this, this, what's really interesting to me is that for most faiths, most religious traditions out there, at some level, what they believe is based on Experience, personal experience. So Hinduism, kind of their religious texts are called the Vedas. And what these are are just oral traditions, things that people shared and thought across time, all kind of collected together. They're viewed as sacred writings, but it's just people's experiences kind of gathered together. Buddhism similar. It's actually the teachings of the Buddha kind of gathered together. And maybe there's some good thoughts in there and some helpful things in there. But it's just someone's experience kind of gathered together and then treated as divine. Think about Islam. And this is where I think it gets really interesting for us. Islam is based on the teachings of one man who, by the way, lived hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years after Jesus. It's a pretty new religion. Based on the teachings of one man who had a spiritual encounter, a vision, an experience of something divine, of an angel. And then he came out with, with all of these new teachings, which incidentally helped him be very powerful and accomplished what he wanted. And they progressively, as he gained more power, these revelations from God got more violent as he went, as he had more power to accomplish his purposes. And this is the root of Islam. And so if, if you're you know, someone of, of Islamic faith, what you're basing really, what you're basing your faith on is trusting that this one guy's experience of a divine being, a divine encounter, a spiritual experience, is the truth. 
and shapes. Now, there's, there's other beliefs that they have, but it's really all grounded back on this experience. Like, if you trace everything back, it's grounded somewhere. I think Mormonism is, is really similar to this. Mormonism is, is based on the experience of Joseph Smith, this one guy who had this divine experience, divine encounter with an angel, he says, and we gave him gold tablets, and the gold tablets disappeared. Whoopsie, that, you know, that's convenient. And then he ends up with, hey, here's my teachings, follow after these things. And it's based on one person's experience. Literally to this day, uh, Mormons will say, like if you meet up with them, eventually if you start pushing them and asking them questions, they'll just say, well, we'll pray about it and ask Heavenly Father to show you the truth. But because but that's all they really have at the end of the day is experience. Okay, I'm going somewhere with this. Turn in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this, this is how Christianity is different than any other faith, any other religious tradition. 1 Corinthians 15 is Paul writing this ch- to this church in Corinth. And, and some of them were denying the resurrection from the dead for, for us, that someday we will rise from the dead when Christ returns. And Paul writes, and this is what he says in, in 1 Corinthians 15.1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. All right, what, what does he preach to them? Verse 3, for I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that's another name for Peter, then to the twelve, the apostles, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep, in other words, they've died. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And so it's really interesting what, what Paul does here. He, he says, and he's so strong on this, and we'll see how strong he is in a minute. He says, this is, this is the truth that we ground and root our, our, our spiritual experiences in, our lives in. That Jesus, he, he lived, he died, and he rose again from the dead. And this is what he's pushing out. There's really three things he teaches here. The first is that Jesus, in his, his life and death and resurrection, is a historical event. Now, this is something else that's pretty unique about Christianity, is that it, cl- it makes a historical claim, and we can date like pretty precisely when this thing happened, when Jesus came, when he lived, and when he died. And we're told, like the beginning of Luke 2, he was born while Quirinius, this real guy, was governor of Syria. And when he's sentenced to be death, we've already talked about him, to be, de- to be killed, uh, Pilate, the governor, the Roman governor, who's this real guy in the historical record, sentenced him. Like Christianity's not making these claims about faith as a whole or about like your experience and peace. It's making a claim about Jesus, that Jesus really came and really died. And in Christianity, because of this, it, it, there's this principle called the falsifiability of something. Big word, right? It just means that something you can prove whether or not it's true. And if you found something that showed it wasn't true, it could bring the whole thing down. Most religions don't have falsifiability. They just make these claims so big, so broad. Oh, I saw an angel and he gave me these things and listen to what I have to say. And this is who God is. They're just these big claims. Christianity makes a very specific historical claim about Jesus, that he came, he lived, he died, and he rose again from the dead, which is this massive claim, and it's right at the center of Christianity. And so here's what this means. If someday we were to find a tomb, and it had the bones of Jesus from Nazareth, the one from the Bible, and his bones were in there. And then we found like a, a, something actually written by Peter, the follower of Jesus, saying it was all a hoax, it was all fake, Jesus actually died. 
then what that means is we should no longer be Christians. If the evidence shows that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we shouldn't be Christians. Like if it, if it actually, if, if we became convinced, now I know just to be clear, I don't think that's going to happen. I believe firmly in the truth of Jesus's life, death, and resurrection. But if we were to ever find something that just proved Jesus didn't rise from the dead, then, then Christianity should fall apart. We should disband this church immediately and go do something else because what we believe is not true. But it's, it's based on something that's objective, right? A historical event. The next thing that, that, that Paul says twice is these things happen according to the scriptures. And so going back uh, a long time before Jesus lived, like before Jesus lived, you could go back 12, 1300 years and you have these writings, 1400 years, these scriptural writings that are pointing us to Jesus. And so it's not just somebody's experience. It wasn't just the disciples hearing Jesus teach and being like, man, what a divine dude. No, they, they understood what he, he demonstrated by his power, by his teachings, but they also looked back on how Jesus was the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecies written six, seven, eight hundred years before him, and how even going back to what Moses wrote, like 1,300 years before Jesus, they're all pointing to Jesus. And so, so we base what we believe not on the foundation of experience, but on the historical event of Jesus coming and living, dying, rising again from the dead, and how that lines up with Scripture. And then the third thing Paul highlights here is all the witnesses to the risen Jesus. It wasn't like Jesus rose from the dead and like appeared to one person, Peter, and then everybody had to trust Peter. Jesus appeared to Peter. And the 11, and we know from the gospel accounts, there were some women who were there that Jesus appeared to first. And then Jesus appears to 500, at one time, 500 people. And then he appears to James. This is presumably James, the brother of Jesus. And then he appeared also to Paul. Jesus, it, this, is, this is not a private affair of Jesus revealing himself. Lots of people encounter the risen Jesus. And what's interesting about this is most, many of those, and of course out of the 12 apostles, almost all of them were killed for their faith. Why would they, they go and give their lives and die if something wasn't true? There's a guy named Charles Colson who's passed away now, but he was a very influential Christian in America in the 80s and 90s and did a lot of prison ministry and did, did a lot to help Christians engage with the world around them. And he was actually part of the Watergate scandal under Nixon. And he said, he actually became a Christian through that. So it was God's grace in his life. But he, was, he was, got indicted and then convicted and served prison time over the Watergate scandal. And he said it was interesting because there was like seven guys at the center of this. who, who all. And if, if none of them talked, nobody would find out the truth about Watergate. But when the pressure came, in, in a matter of no time at all, they were all talking with prosecutors and sharing. And Colson said, it just showed me that if the disciples weren't serious about what they saw and believe and knew that they saw the risen Jesus, then they would have cracked under the pressure. But they didn't. They were faithful to the end. And so for Paul, your experience, my experience is not what this is about. It's about what actually happened, the historical event of Jesus dying and rising again from the dead, which showed he is who he said he was. There's something verifiable there's something substantial. There's something foundational about this. And so your faith should not just be based on what you experience. It should be rooted in Jesus' resurrection. Let's see what Paul continues on to say. Remember, he's kind of arguing against people who, who say there's no resurrection from the dead. But look down at verse 14 of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. If Christ has, been, has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain 
and your faith is in vain. If Christ has not been raised from the dead. Go down to verse 17. If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Like it doesn't matter if you feel good about where you're at with God. If the foundation of your faith is not Jesus' death and resurrection, then it doesn't matter what you experience. Your, your hope's futile. And only through Jesus being raised can we be saved from our sins. And then verse 19, if in this life only we have hoped in Christ, we of all people are most to be pitied. If, if we're just hoping in something that's only about this life and making this life better, we, people should feel bad for us because the Christian life is hard. And it, it says give up what you want and deny yourself and take up your cross and follow after Jesus. And if we're, we're doing all of that just for this life, we should be pitied. But Paul says we're not because our experience, our belief is tied back into something that happened. It's a historical event with witnesses that lined up with what Scripture teaches. And so this, this is really what makes Christianity and Christian faith and following Jesus so different than all other religions is that it's based in these historical events that we can go back specifically and date and look at and question and acknowledge and believe in that Jesus has come and he really taught and what he taught lines up with what the Old Testament teaches and it lines up with his death and his resurrection and all of it's confirmed by his resurrection. So when Jesus says, I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We believe it. Not just because he said it, but because he said it. He gave his life as an innocent man. And then he rose again from the dead, showing that he was who he claimed to be. He was the Son of God. Now, I think for many of us, if we're, if we're being honest, our faith is based a lot more in experience than it is in that reality. It's kind of based on how we're feeling, on the fact that following Jesus or understanding the Bible gives us some joy or gives us some peace or makes us feel better about things. But if, if, if your faith is based in your experience, then it's just based in yourself. And you're going to shift and you're going to change and you're going to have a hard time with things. But what we have to do as Christians is base our, our life and our experience and base our faith in the reality that Jesus is who he said he was because he died for our sins and then rose again from the dead. It's a historical event, witnesses, it lines up with the scriptures, and we base our lives in that. We fix our, our hope in that and not experiences. So people, we're spiritual beings, we'll have spiritual experiences, but what sets Christianity apart is we believe in Jesus, God who became human, and what he did for us. So here's, here's my question for you today. Are you going to fix your hope on that? Not on this life, not on the peace you're looking for, the joy you're looking for here, but are you going to base your life on what Jesus has done, on who he is, and what he's calling us to, because that is the only way the rest of life makes sense. That is the only way you, you really find joy and peace in life is through fully and completely trusting that Jesus died for your sins and he rose from the dead. And someday, Paul teaches us, we will rise to be with him when he returns. We'll be resurrected from the dead and we will enter into eternity with him. That's the future we have. So what are you basing your life in? Your experiences? For the fact that Jesus really and truly died and rose again from the dead. And that 
is the foundation for all experiences we have. Let's prepare our hearts to pray together this morning. Jesus, we invite you into this time right now. And we ask that you would meet every person listening, every person watching this right now, that we would, we would be able to receive the reality of what you have done. That we wouldn't trust in ourselves, our lives, our experiences. We would trust fully and completely in you. Jesus, I pray that you would, you would reach into our hearts right now. That you would help us through our trust and faith in what you have objectively done. That we would subjectively have an experience of your closeness and that Holy Spirit. You would come into our hearts and fill us. And Father, I pray for those who are wrestling right now with their lives, with their personal experience, and with their doubt and their faith. I pray that you would come in and give them true faith in what you have done so they can draw close to you. I pray this all in your name, Jesus. Amen.